Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. There was a book I carried around with me all throughout the second half of grade 10 when I was attending Waldorf School in Vienna, 1997. I would have been doing my earthwork in the Zelator grade back then. And I was carrying around and reading Franz Hartmann's Magic White and Black, which I thought I've always wanted to share a bit with people because I think he's overlooked, especially as concerns things like the early original histories of magic and the OTO and that sort of thing. I was uh, very encouraged in these readings because in Europe you have religion class in high school and in Waldorf school you have some interesting options for religion class and I chose to attend a religion class with a priest from the Christian community which is a church based on anthroposophy and Rudolf Steiner. And the course was called Zum Thema Magie, so we spoke about magic. Uh, after a few weeks, the professor didn't really know what he was talking about and uh, would ask me to talk about a few things. And by the end of the course, I was being asked to teach it, which was embarrassing and stupid because I was a kid. But maybe it was more stupid that a teacher was trying to teach something that they had no knowledge of and thought they could just tease out by randomly asking questions to the class. So that was... Uh, interesting. Um, the idea that some people have, even in the esoteric community, that magic is something amorphous, has never really been studied, never really been practiced, and isn't really known, and the only way to come up with even a definition of what it is or what it might contain is if we sort of make one up and negotiate it amongst ourselves in every single different group that is approaching the subject. It's an odd idea that some people have, and it usually comes from just not doing any research whatsoever of the topic. And that happens in other fields as well, surprisingly. So it's not unique to esoteric themes. Without further ado, therefore, Magic, White and Black by Franz Hartmann. There is no religion higher than the recognition of truth. Introduction. Whatever misinterpretation ancient or modern ignorance may have given to the word magic, its only true significance is the highest science, or wisdom, based upon knowledge and practical experience. If you doubt whether there is any such thing as magic, and if you desire any practical illustration about it, open your eyes and look around you. See the world, the animals and the trees, and ask yourself whether they could have come into existence by any other power than by the magic power of nature. Magical power is not a supernatural power. If by the term supernatural you mean a power which is outside, beyond, or external to nature, to suppose the existence of such a power is an absurdity and a superstition opposed to all our experience. For we see that all organisms, vegetable and animal ones, grow by the action of internal forces acting outwardly, and not by having something added to their substance from the outside. A seed does not become a tree, nor a child a man, by having substance added to its organism by some outside workman, or like a house which is built by putting stones on top of each other. But living things grow by action of an internal force, acting from a center within the form. To this center flow the influences coming from the universal storehouse of matter and motion, and from there they radiate again towards the periphery and perform that labor which builds up the living organism. But what else can such a power be except spiritual power? And as such it is supernatural, although acting in nature, for nature is neither spirit nor God but a product of the Divine Spirit, an image formed in the universal mind by the power of the Divine Will. God is all, but all is not God, and the magical powers of justice, wisdom, and love, etc., are not products of nature, but attributes of the Spirit. As such, they are higher than nature, although not outside of it. It penetrates to the very center of material things, 
it cannot be a mere mechanical force, for we know that a mechanical force ceases as soon as the impulse which originated it ceases to act. It cannot be a chemical force, for chemical action ceases when the chemical combination of the substances which were to combine has taken place. It must therefore be a living power, and as life cannot be a product of dead form, it can be nothing else but the power of life acting within the life centers of the forms. This life, or will, in nature is a magician, and every plant, animal, and man is a magician, who uses this power unconsciously and instinctively to build up his own organism, or in other words, Every living being is an organism in which the magic power of life acts. And if a man should attain the knowledge how to control this power of life and to employ it consciously instead of merely submitting unconsciously to its influence, then he would be a magician and could control the processes of life in his own organism. Now the question is, can any man obtain such a power as to control the processes of life? The answer to this question depends on what you mean by the term man. If you mean by man an intellectual animal such as we meet every day in the streets, then the answer is no. For the majority of the men and women of our present generation, including our greatest scientific lumens, know absolutely nothing about the universal thing or no thing which produces what we call life and which we may call the will because we know that no action ever takes place without an effort of what we call will exercised with or without relative consciousness some of them have not even made up their minds whether or not they will believe in existence they can neither see it nor feel it, and therefore they do not know what to make of it. But if you mean by man that intelligent principle, which is active within the organism of man, and which constitutes him a human being, and by whose action he becomes a being very distinct from and above the animals in human or animal form, then the answer is yes. For the divine power which acts within the organism of animal man is the same and identical power which acts within the center of nature. It is an internal power of man, and belongs to man, and if man once knows all the powers which belong to his essential constitution and knows how to use them, then he may enter from the passive into the active state and employ these powers himself absurd as it may seem. It is nevertheless a logical consequence drawn from the fundamental truths about the constitution of man, that if a man could control the universal power of life acting within himself, he might prolong the life of his organism as long as it pleased to him. If he could control it and knew all the laws of matter, he might render it dense or vaporous concentrate it to a small point, or expand it so as to occupy a great deal of space. Verily, truth is stranger than fiction, and we might see it, if we could only rise above the narrow conceptions and prejudices which we have inherited and acquired by education and sensual observation. The most strange things happen continually in nature, and hardly attract our attention. They do not seem strange to us, although we do not understand them, merely because we are accustomed to see them every day. Who would be so foolish as to believe that a tree could grow out of a seed, as there is evidently no tree in the seed, if his experience had not told him that trees grow out of seeds in spite of all arguments to the contrary? Who would believe that a flower could grow out of a plant if he had not seen it, for observation and reason show that there is no flower in the stock. Nevertheless, flowers grow and cannot be disputed away. Everywhere in nature, the action of an universal law is manifest, but we cannot see the law itself. Everywhere we see the manifestation of a will, but those who seek for the origin of will within their own brains will seek for it in vain. 
The art of magic is the art of employing invisible or so-called spiritual agencies to obtain certain visible results. Such agencies are not flitting about in space, ready to come at the command of anyone who has learned certain incantations and ceremonies, but they consist principally in the unseen but nevertheless powerful influences of the emotions and the will, of desires and passions, thought and imagination, love and hate, fear and hope, faith and doubt, etc., etc. They are the powers of what is called the soul. They are employed everywhere and by everyone every day, consciously or unconsciously, willingly or unwillingly. And while those that cannot control or resist such influences, but are controlled by them, are passive instruments, mediums, through which such unseen powers act, and often their unwilling slaves. Those who are able to guide and control such influences by gaining control over themselves are, in proportion to their controlling capacity, active and powerful and true magicians. We see, therefore, that with the exception of irresponsible persons, everyone who has any willpower is, insofar as he exercises that power, an active magician. A white magician if he employs them for good, a black magician if he uses them for the purposes of evil. We all cannot honestly say we have life, for life does not belong to us and we cannot control or monopolize it. All we can say without arrogance and presumption is that we are instruments through which a universal principle that produces what we call life manifests itself in the form of a human being. We are all mediums through which a universal will which causes life acts. He who thinks that he has any power, whatever of his own, thinks foolishly. For all the powers he has are lent him by nature, or, more correctly speaking, by that eternal spiritual power which acts in and from the center of nature, and which men have called God, because they have found it to be the source of all good. No one will deny that man, besides having physical powers, is also temporarily endowed with mental and spiritual energies. We love, respect, or obey a person not on account of his superior bodily strength, but on account of his intellectual and moral worth, or while we are under the spell of some real or imaginary authority that we may believe him to possess. A king or a bishop has, as a person, not necessarily any more power than his lackey or butler, and must make himself known before he will be obeyed. A captain may be the weakest man in his company, and still his soldiers obey him. We love beauty, harmony, and sublimity, not on account of their usefulness for material purposes, but because they satisfy an inner sense which does not belong to the physical plane. What would be a world without the magic power of love, of beauty, and harmony? How would a world look if made after a pattern furnished by the modern rationalistic philosopher, a world in which beauty and the power of good were not recognized could be nothing else but a world of maniacs. In such a world, art and poetry could not exist. Justice would become a convenience, honesty be equivalent with imbecility. To be truthful would be to be foolish, and self-interest the only God worthy of any consideration. Magic is that science which deals with the mental powers of man and shows what control he may exercise over himself and others. In order to study the powers of man, it is necessary to investigate what man is and what relation he bears to the universe, and such an investigation, if properly conducted, will show that the elements which compose the essential man are identical with those we find in the universe, that is to say, that the universe is the macrocosm, and man its true copy, the microcosm. Microcosmic man and the macrocosm of nature are one. How could it be possible that the macrocosm should contain anything not contained within the microcosm, or that man should have something within his organism which cannot be found within the grand organism of nature?
Is not man the child of nature? And can there be anything within his constitution which does not come from his eternal father and mother? If man's organization contained something unnatural, he would be a monster, and nature would spew him out. Everything contained in nature can be found within the organism of man and exists therein either in a germinal or developed state, either latent or active, and may be perceived by him who possesses the power of self-knowledge. We are born into a world in which we find ourselves surrounded by physical objects. There seems to be still another, a subjective world within us, capable of receiving and retaining impressions from the outside world. Each one is a world of its own, with a relation to space different from that of the other. Each has its days of sunshine and its nights of darkness, which are not regulated by the days and nights of the other. Each has its clouds and its storms and shapes and forms of its own. If we ask of science to teach us the true nature of these worlds and the laws that govern them, but physical science deals only with external forms, she gives only a partial solution of the problems of the objective world and leaves us in regard to the subjective world entirely in the dark. Modern science classifies phenomena and describes events but to describe how an event takes place is not sufficient to explain why it takes place. To discover causes, which are in themselves the effects of unknown primal causes, is only to evade one difficulty by substituting another. Science describes some of the attributes of things, but the first causes which brought these attributes into existence are unknown to her, and will remain so, until... Her powers of perception will penetrate in the unseen. Besides scientific observation, there are claims to be still another way to obtain knowledge of the mysterious side of nature. The religious teachers of the world claim to have sounded the depths which the scientists cannot reach. Their doctrines are supposed by many to have been received through certain divine or angelic revelations proceeding from a supreme infinite, omnipresent, and yet personal and therefore limited being, the existence of which has never been proved. Where is the proof that such revelations are either true or divine? Surely a blind belief in the contents of a book cannot be real knowledge, nor can it be reasonably supposed that the theologians themselves have any actual knowledge of what they teach. We dare say that there are but few clergymen who are personally acquainted with God. Nevertheless, thousands are engaged in teaching others that which they themselves do not know. And in spite of a very great number of religious systems, there is comparatively little religion at present upon the earth. The term religion is derived from the Latin word religere, which may be properly translated to bind back or to relate. Religion, in the true sense of the term, implies that science which examines the link which exists between man and the cause from which he originated, or in other words, which deals with the relation which exists between man and the world of causes. True religion is therefore a science far higher than a science based upon mere sensual perception, but it cannot be in conflict with what is true in science. Only what is false in science must necessarily be in conflict with what is true in religion, and what is false in religion is in conflict with what is true in science. True religion and true science are ultimately one and the same thing. A religion that clings to illusions and an illusory science are equally false, and the greater the obstinacy with which they cling to their illusions, the more pernicious is their effect. There should a distinction be made between religion and religionism, between science and scientism, between mystic and mysticism. The highest aspect of religion is practically the union of man with the supreme first cause, from which his essence emanated in the beginning. Its second aspect teaches the relations existing between that great first cause and man, 
in other words, the relations existing between the macrocosm and microcosm. In its lowest aspect, religionism consists of the adulation of dead forms, of the worshipping of fetishes, of fruitless attempts to wheedle oneself into the favor of some imaginary deity, to persuade God to change his mind, and to try to obtain some favors which are not in accordance with justice. Science, in her highest aspect, is the self-knowledge of the fundamental laws of nature, and is therefore a spiritual science, based upon the knowledge of the spirit within our own selves. In her lower aspect, it is a knowledge of external phenomena, and the secondary or superficial causes which produce the latter, and which our scientism mistakes for the final cause. In its lowest aspect, scientism is a system of observation and classification of external phenomena, of the causes of which we know nothing. Religionism and scientism are continually subject to changes. They have been created by illusions, and die when the illusions are over. True science and true religion are one, and if joined to practice, they form the three lateral pyramid, whose foundations are upon the earth, and whose point reaches to heaven. Mystic, in its true meaning, is spiritual knowledge, that is to say, the knowledge of spiritual and supersensual things, perceived by the spiritual powers of perception. These powers are germinally contained in every human organization, but only few have developed them sufficiently to be of any practical use. Mysticism is a hankering after illusions, a desire to pry into mysteries which we cannot comprehend, a craving to satisfy our curiosity in regard to what we ought not to know, as long as we have not the power to understand it. It is the realm of fancies of dreams, the paradise of ghost seers, and of spiritistic tomfooleries of all kinds. But which is the true religion and the true science? There is no doubt that a definite relationship exists between man and the cause that called humanity into existence, and a true religion and a true science must be the one which teaches the true terms of that relation. If we take a superficial view of the various religious systems of the world, we find them all apparently contradicting each other. We find a great mass of apparent superstitions and absurdities heaped upon a grain of something that may be true. We admire the ethics and moral doctrines of our favorite religious system, and we take its theological rubbish in our bargain, forgetting that the ethics of nearly all religions are essentially the same, and that the rubbish which surrounds them is not real religion. It is evidently an absurdity to believe that any system could be true, unless it contained the truth. But it is equally evident that a thing cannot be true and false at the same time. The truth can only be one. The truth never changes. But we ourselves change, and as we change, so changes our aspect of the truth. The various religious systems of the world cannot be unnatural or supernatural products. They are all the natural outgrowth of man's evolution upon this globe, and they differ only in so far as the conditions under which they came into existence differed at the time when they began to exist. But true religion is supernatural, for it is that clinging of the soul of man to that which is higher than his semi-animal and impermanent nature. Each intellectual human being, except one blinded by prejudice, recognizes the fact that each of the great religious systems of the world contains certain truths which we intuitively know to be true. And as there can be only one fundamental truth, so all these religions are branches of the same tree, even if the forms in which the truth manifests itself are not alike. The sunshine is everywhere the same, only its intensity differs in different localities, in one place it induces the growth of palms, in another of mushrooms, but there is only one sun in our system. The processes going on on the physical plane have their analogies in the spiritual realm, but there is only one nature, one law.
If one person quarrels with another about religion, he cannot have the true religion, nor can he have any true knowledge. The only true religion is the religion of love, and love does not quarrel. Love is an element of wisdom, and there can be no wisdom without love. Each species of birds in the woods sings a different tune, but the principle which causes them to sing is the same in each. They do not quarrel with each other because one can sing better than the rest. Moreover, religious disputations with their resulting animosities are the most useless things in the world. For no one can combat the darkness by fighting it with a stick. The only way to remove darkness is to kindle a light. The only way to dispel spiritual ignorance is to let the light of knowledge that comes from the center of love shine into the heart. All religions are based upon internal truth. All have an outside ornamentation which varies in character in the different systems, but all have the same foundation of truth. And if we compare the various systems with one another, looking below the surface of exterior forms, we find that this truth is in all religious systems one and the same. In all this truth has been hidden beneath a more or less allegorical language. Impersonal and invisible powers have been personified and represented in images carved in stones or wood, and the formless and the real has been pictured in elusive forms. These forms in letters and pictures and images are the means by which truths may be brought to the attention of the unripe mind. They are to the grown-up children of all nations what picture books are to small children who are not yet able to read, and it would be as unreasonable to deprive grown-up children of their images before they are able to read in their own hearts, as it would be to take away the picture books from little children and to ask them to read printed books which they cannot yet understand. Very stupid indeed, and insignificant would be the stories contained in the Bible and in other religious books if the personal events described therein were referring merely to certain occurrences having happened in the lives of certain individuals who lived some thousands of years ago, and whose biography can seriously interest no one today, what do we care now about the family affairs of a man called Adam or Abraham? Why should we want to be interested in knowing how many legitimate or illegitimate children the patriarchs had, and what became of them? What is it to us whether or not a man by the name of Jonah was thrown into the water and swallowed by a whale? What happens today in the various countries of Europe is more interesting and important for us to know than what happened at the court of Zerubbabel or Nebuchadnezzar. But fortunately for the Bible, and if we only knew how to read it, fortunately for us, the stories contained therein are by no means merely histories of persons who lived in ancient times, but they are allegories and myths having very often a very deep meaning, of which our expounders of the Bible, as well as its critics, usually know very little. Fictions are necessary to represent truths, but they should not be mistaken for the truth itself. The truth is eternal and cannot be grasped by that which is neither eternal nor true. We need fictions to bring it within our grasp. As long as we have ourselves merely a fictitious existence. The men and the women of the Old and New Testament are much more than mere persons supposed to have existed at that time. They are personifications of eternally active spiritual forces, of which physical science does not even know that they exist, and their histories give an account of their action, their interrelations within the macrocosm and its counterpart, the microcosm. They teach the history of the evolution of mankind in its spiritual aspect. If our natural philosophers would study the Bible in its esoteric and spiritual aspects, they might learn a great many things which they desire to know. They might learn to find out what are the true powers of the living faith, and which are required to produce occult phenomena at will. They might find instruction how to transmute lead or iron into pure gold, and to transform animals 
and to gods. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or fifty for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. But it is a truth based upon natural laws, that man can see nothing except that which exists in his mind. If his mind is filled with illusions, he will see nothing but illusions, and the deepest of symbols will be pictures without meaning to him. If our children, the big ones as well as the little ones, are only looking at the pictures without learning the text, they are apt to grow to believe the pictorial representations to be the very things they are intended to represent. They become accustomed to forget that forms are only illusions, and that formless realities cannot be seen. It is so much easier to believe than to think. Children should not linger over their picture books so long as to neglect their higher education. Humanity has outgrown the infancy of its present cycle and asks for more intellectual food. The age of superstition is passing away, and the demand is not for opinions but for knowledge, and knowledge cannot be obtained without an effort. The expressed opinion of one person can only give rise to a knowledge in another if corroborated by the same or similar experience of the latter. A person can only truly believe that which he knows, and he can only actually know that which he has perceived. There is a difference between perceiving and understanding the truth. We may perceive the truth with our heart, and we understand it with our brain. In other words, we may feel the truth intuitively and examine it intellectually. If our present generation would cultivate the faculty of feeling the truth with their hearts, and afterwards examine that which they feel by means of their intellect, we would soon have a far better and happier state of society everywhere. But the great curse of our age is that the intellectual faculties are strained to their utmost power of resistance to examine the external form of things intellectually without perceiving their spiritual character by the power of intuition. Men, instead of living in the sanctuary of the temples which they inhabit, are continually absent from there, and reside in the garret under the roof, looking out through the windows of the garret after the illusions of life. Day and night they stand there and watch, careful that none of the passing illusions may escape their observation, and while their attention is absorbed by these idle shows, the thieves enter the house and the sanctuary without being seen and steal away the treasures. Then, at the time when the house is destroyed and death appears, the soul returns to the heart and finds it empty and desolate, and all the illusions that occupied the brain during life fly away, and man is left poor indeed, because he has not perceived the truth in his heart. The real object of a religious system should therefore be to teach a way by which a person may develop the power to perceive the truth. To ask a man to believe in the opinion expressed by another and to remain satisfied with such a belief is to ask him to remain ignorant and to trust in another person more than to himself. A person without knowledge can have no conviction no faith and his adoption of one particular system depends on the circumstances under which he is born or brought up or surrounded. He is most liable to adopt that system which his parents or neighbors have inherited or adopted, and if he changes from one system to another, he, generally speaking, does so from mere sentimentality or on account of some selfish consideration, expecting to obtain some benefit to himself by that change. From a spiritual standpoint, he will gain nothing under such circumstances, because to approach the truth, he must love the truth for its own sake, and not on account of the personal advantage that it may bring. From an intellectual standpoint, he will gain little or nothing by exchanging one superstition for another. 
The only way by which man can hope to arrive at the truth is to love the truth on account of its being the truth, and to free his mind from all prejudices and predilections, so that its light may penetrate into the mind. What is the religionism of today but a religion of fear? Men do not wish to avoid vice, but they wish to avoid the punishment for having indulged in vice. Their experience teaches them that the laws of nature are unchangeable, but nevertheless they continue to act against the universal law. They claim to believe in a God who is unchangeable, and yet they implore his assistance if they desire to break his own law. When will they rise up to the true conception that the only possible God is that universal power which acts through the law, which is itself the law and cannot be changed? To break the law is identical with breaking the God within ourselves. And the only way to obtain forgiveness after he is broken is to restore the law and to create a new God within ourselves. It may be well to study the opinions of others and to store them up in the book of our memory, but we should not accept them on any merely external evidence nor reject them without investigation but weigh them in the scales of reason and justice. Even the teachings of the world's greatest adepts can only instruct us, but give us no real knowledge. They can show the way, but we must take ourselves the steps on the ladder. Were we to recognize their dictum as the final aim, to be accepted without any further investigation, we should again fall back into a system of belief for the sake of authority, Knowledge gives strength. Doubt paralyzes the will. A man who does not believe that he is able to walk will not be able to walk as long as he does not believe. A man who knows by experience that he can command himself will be able to do so. He who can command himself can command that which is below him because the low is controlled by the high and there is nothing higher than man having obtained a perfect knowledge of self. The knowledge of self is identical with self-knowledge, because the true self of man is God. It is unlimited, and knowing its own self, it knows everything by its own power. It is knowledge independent of any opinions, dogmas, or doctrines, no matter from what authority they may proceed. If we study the teachings of any supposed authority external to our own selves, we at best know what the opinion of such an authority is in regard to the truth. But we do not necessarily arrive thereby at a self-knowledge of the truth. If we, for instance, learn what Christ taught about God, we are only informed of what he knew or believed to know, but we cannot know God for all that, unless we awaken to a realization of his presence within our own heart. The knowledge of even the wisest of all men, if communicated to us, will be to us nothing more than an opinion, as long as it is not experienced within our own selves. As long as we cannot penetrate within the soul of man, we can know little more about him but his corporeal form. But how could we penetrate within the soul of another as long as we have not the capacity to enter our own? Therefore, the beginning of all real knowledge is the knowledge of the self. Does rationalistic speculation confer any true knowledge of man? The range of her power of observation is limited by the perception power of her physical senses, assisted by physical instruments. She has no means to investigate that which transcends physical sense. She cannot enter the temple of the unseen. She only knows the external form in which the reality dwells. She only knows the elusive form of man. She knows nothing whatever of the essential and real man. In vain shall we look to her for the solution of the problem, which thousands of years ago the ancient Sphinx propounded. Do the popular religious systems confer any true knowledge of man? The conception which the average theologian has of the mysterious being called man is as little as that of the professor of modern science. He looks upon man as a personal being. 
isolated from other personal beings around whose infinite little personality centers the interests of the infinitely great. He forgets that the founders upon the principal religious systems taught that the original and essential man, Adam, was an impersonal power, that the real man, the Christ, is the whole and cannot be divided, and that the personal man is only the temporary temple in which the universal spirit resides. Corinthians 3.15 The misconceptions arising from ignorance of the true nature of man are the cause that the popular religious opinions held by the average theologians in Christian and pagan countries are based upon selfishness, contrary to the spirit of that which true religion teaches. Christians and heathens clamor for some personal benefit to be conferred by some imaginary person upon their insignificant personal self, either here or in the problematical hereafter. Each one of such short-sighted persons wants to be saved himself above all. The salvation of the rest is a matter of secondary consideration. They expect to obtain some benefit which they do not deserve, to wheedle themselves into the favor of some personal deity, to cheat the devil of his just dues, and to smuggle their imperfections into the kingdom of heaven. The only reasonable objective which any external religious system can possibly have is to elevate man from a lower state to a higher one, in which he can form a better conception of his true dignity as a member of the human family. If there is any possibility of imparting to a man a knowledge of self, the churches are the places where such a knowledge should be imparted. But to accomplish this, the claims of the spirit should predominate over those of the form. The interests of religion and the interests of the church would have to cease to be amalgamated and the church should again be founded upon the rock of the living faith instead of the craving to obtain some selfish personal benefit in this world or in the hereafter. He who is led by selfish considerations cannot enter a heaven where personal considerations do not exist. He who does not care for heaven but is contented where he is, is already in heaven, while the discontented will in vain clamor for it. To be without personal desires is to be free and happy, and heaven can mean nothing else but a state in which freedom and happiness exist. The man who performs beneficial acts induced by a hope of reward is not happy unless the reward is obtained. A man who performs a good act with the hope of reward is not free. He is the servant of self and works for the benefit of self and not for the absolute good. It is, therefore, not the power of good which will reward him. He can only expect the reward from his own personal self. The man who performs evil acts, induced by a selfish motive, is not free. He who desires evil and is restrained by fear is not his own master. He who recognizes the supreme power of the universe in his heart has become free. He whose will is swayed by his lower personal self is the slave of his person, but he who has conquered that lower self enters the higher life. The science of life consists in subduing the low and elevating the high. Its first lesson is how to free oneself from the love of self, the first angel of evil. This self is composed of a great many selves or eyes, of which each one has his peculiar claims and whose demands grow in proportion as we attempt to satisfy them. They are the semi-intellectual forces of the soul that would rend the soul to pieces if they were allowed to grow, and which must be subdued by the power of the real master, the superior I, the spirit. These eyes are the elementals, of which has been said so much in occult literature. They are not imaginary things, but living forces, and they may be perceived by him who has acquired the power to look within his own soul. Each of these forces corresponds to some desire, and if it is permitted to grow is symbolized by the form of the animal which corresponds to its nature. At first they are thin and shadowy, but as the desire which corresponds to them is indulged in, they become more and more dense and gain greater strength as our desires grow into a passion. The lesser elementals 
are swallowed by the bigger ones. The little desires are absorbed by the stronger ones, until perhaps at last one master passion, one powerful elemental remains. They are described as having the form of snakes and tigers, hogs, insatiable wolves, etc. But as they are often the result of a mixture of human and animal elements, they do not merely exhibit purely animal forms, but frequently they look like animals with human heads, or like men with animal members. They appear under endless varieties of shapes because there is an endless variety of correlations and mixtures of lust, avarice, greed, sensual love, ambition, cowardice, fear, terror, hate, pride, vanity, self-conceit, stupidity, voluptuousness, selfishness, jealousy, envy, arrogance, hypocrisy, cunning, sophistry, imbecility, superstition, etc., etc., they constitute the false eyes or egos in man, for even if man in his self-conceit may imagine that he knows his true self, and that this self is only one, a deeper thought will convince him that he is not self-existent, but an ever-changing product of nature. He will then see that as long as God has not awakened in his soul, he is not truly self-conscious, but that it is nature having become self-conscious in his organism. Creating therein these various states of self-consciousness, each of which he mistakes for his own true self. These elementals live in the soul realm of man as long as he lives, and grow strong and fat, for they live on his self-principle, and are fed by the substance of his thoughts. They may even become objective to him, if during a paroxysm of fear or in consequence of some disease they are unable to step out of their sphere. They cannot be killed by pious ceremonies nor driven away by the acceptations of a clergyman. They are only destroyed by the power of the spiritual will of man, which annihilates them as the light annihilates darkness or as a stroke of lightning rends the clouds. Only those who have awakened to spiritual consciousness can have that spiritual will of which the non-regenerated know nothing. But those who are not yet so far advanced may cause those elementals to die slowly by withdrawing from them the food which they require, that is to say, by avoiding all desires and thoughts which correspond to their character. They will then begin to wane, to get sick, die and putrefy like a member of the body which has become mortified. A line of demarcation will be forming. In the soul body of man, there may be an inflammation and suffering, a process similar to that which takes place if a gangrenous part of the physical body is uh, thrown off or takes place, and at last the putrid carcass of the elemental drops off and dissolves. These descriptions are neither fancies nor allegories. Theophrastus Paracelsus, Jacob Burma, Jacob Burma, and many other writers on occultism write about them, and a due appreciation of their doctrines will go far to explain many occurrences mentioned in the history of witchcraft and in the legends of the lives of the saints. But there are not merely animal germs within the realm of the soul of man. In each human institution, there are also germs which go to make up a Shakespeare, a Washington, Goethe, Voltaire, a Buddha, or Christ. There are likewise the germs which may grow to make a Nero, Mussolini, or Torquemada, and each germ may develop and take a form and ultimately find its expression and reflection in the outward form. But much of the density of the material atoms which are slow to transform will permit, for each character corresponds to a form and each form to a character. Man's microcosm is a garden in which all kinds of living plants grow. Some are poisonous, some are wholesome plants. It rests with man to decide which germs he wants to develop into a living tree, and that tree will be himself. There are within him the germs of matter and soul, and of spiritual activity. In him are the seeds from which spring intellectual and emotional functions, and the deepest of all is the hidden will at the center the spirit, which is to become the immortal man, the true self. To accomplish this task, 
It is not necessary to become a misanthrope and retire into a jungle to feed on the products of one's own morbid imagination. The struggle caused by the petty annoyances of everyday life is the best school to exercise the willpower for those that have not yet gained the mastery over self. Quote, to renounce the vanities of the world does not mean to look with contempt upon the progress of the world, to remain ignorant of mathematics and logic, to take no interest in the welfare of humanity, to avoid the duties of life or neglect one's family. Such a proceeding would accomplish the very reverse of what is intended. It would increase the love of self. It would concentrate the soul to a small focus instead of expanding it over the world. To renounce oneself means to conquer the sense of personality and to free oneself of the love of things which that personality desires. It means to live in the world but not cling to the world, to substitute universal love for personal love, and to consider the interests of the whole of superior importance than personal claims. The renunciation of self is necessarily followed by spiritual growth. As we forget our personal self, we attach less importance to personalities, personal things, and personal feelings. We begin to look upon ourselves not as being permanent, unchanging, and unchangeable entities, standing isolated among other isolated entities, and being separated from them by impenetrable shells, but as parts of an infinite power, which embraces the universe, and whose powers are concentrated and brought to a focus in the bodies which we temporarily inhabit, into which bodies continually flow and from which are incessantly radiating the rays of an infinite sphere of light, whose circumference is endless and whose center is everywhere. Upon the recognition and realization of this truth rests the only true religion, the religion of the universal love of all beings. As long as man takes only his own little self into consideration in his thoughts and acts, the sphere of his mind becomes necessarily narrow. All our popular religious sects are based upon selfish considerations. Each of our religious sectarians speculates to obtain some spiritual, if not material, benefit for himself. Each one wants to be saved by somebody, first he, and then perhaps the others, but above all he himself. The true religion of universal love knows of no self. Even the desire to go to heaven or enter the state of nirvana is, after all, but a selfish desire. And as long as man has any selfish desires whatever, his mind perceives only his own self. Only when he ceases to have a limited elusive self will his real self become unlimited and be omnipresent. He who desires unlimited knowledge must rise above limitation. Looked at from that height, the personality appears exceedingly small and insignificant, and of little importance. Man appears as the centralization of an idea, persons and people like living grains of sand on the shore of an infinite ocean. Fortune, fame, love, luxury, etc. Assume in his conception the importance of soap bubbles, and he has no hesitation in relinquishing them as the idle playthings of children. Neither can such a renunciation be called a sacrifice, for grown-up boys and girls do not sacrifice their pop-guns and dolls. They simply do not want them any longer. In proportion, as their minds expand, do they reach out for something more useful, and as a man's spirit expands, his surroundings and even the planet on which he lives appear to him small, as a landscape seen from a great distance, or from a high mountain, while at the same time his conception of the infinite grows larger and assumes a gigantic form. This expansion of our existence robs us of a country and a home by making us citizens of the grand universe. It separates us from our mortal parents and friends to unite us with them forever as our immortal brothers and sisters. It lifts us up from the narrow confines of the illusory form to the unlimited realm of the ideal and releasing man from the prison house of insignificant clay. It leads him to the sublime splendor of eternal and universal life. Every form of life, the human form not accepted, is nothing more than a focus in which the energies of the universal principle of life are concentrated. 
and the more they are concentrated and cling to that center, the less are they able to manifest their activity to grow and to expand. Self-satisfied man who employs his capacities only for his own selfish purpose contracts them into himself, and as he contracts he becomes more and more insignificant, and as he loses sight of the whole he loses sight of him. If, on the other hand, a person who is not in possession of sufficient energy attempts to send his forces into the region of the unknown, scattering them through space, without having strengthened them by the development of the intellect, they will wander, like shadows, through the realm of the infinite and become lost. Harmonious growth requires expansion along with a corresponding accumulation of energy. Some persons are possessed of great intellectual power, but of little spirituality. Some have spiritual power but a weak intellect. Those in which the spiritual energies are well supported by a strong intellect are the elect. To become practical, we must first learn to understand the thing we want to practice by observation and receiving instruction. Understanding is a result of assimilation and growth, not a result of cramming. It is an awakening to a state of consciousness to the nature of the thing that comes within the range of our cognition. A person coming to a strange country in the evening will, when after a night's rest he awakes in the morning, hardly realize where he is. He has perhaps been dreaming of his home and those that are left there. And only after he opens his eyes and awakens to full sense of consciousness of his new and strange surroundings will the old impressions fade away and he will begin to realize where he is. In the same manner, old errors must disappear before new truths can be realized. Man only begins to exist as a spiritual being when his spirit comes to life. To become perfect, physical health, intellectual growth, and spiritual perception and activity should go hand in hand. Intuition should be supported by an unselfish intellect, a pure mind by a healthy form. How to accomplish this can neither be taught by a science which deals only with illusory effects, nor by a religious belief based upon illusions, but it is taught by the wisdom religion, the knowledge of self, whose foundation is truth, and whose practical application is the highest object of human existence. This wisdom religion has been, and is even today, the inheritance of the saints, prophets, and seers of every one who is wise, no matter to what external system of religion they may have given their adherence. It was known to the ancient Brahmins, Egyptians, and Jews. Gautama Buddha advised his people to strive for it. It formed the basis of the Eleusinian and Bacchic mysteries of the Greeks, and the true religion of Christ is resting upon it. It is the true religion of humanity that has nothing to do with confessions and forms. Now, as in times of old, its truths are misunderstood and misrepresented by men who profess to be the teachers of men. The Pharisees and Sadducees of the New Testament were the prototypes of modern churchmen and scientists existing today. Now as then, the truth is daily crucified between superstition and selfishness and laid in the tomb of ignorance from whence it will rise again. Now as then, the spirit has fled from the form being driven away by those that worship the form and hate the spirit. Wisdom will forever remain a secret science to the idolaters adoring the form, even if it were proclaimed from the housetops and preached at the marketplace. The dealer in pounds and pennies, absorbed by his material interests, may be surrounded by the greatest beauties of nature and not comprehend them. The intellectual reasoner will ask for a sign and not see the signs by which he is continually surrounded. The tomb from which the Savior will arise is the heart of men and women. If the good in them awakens to self-consciousness, then will it appear to them as a sun, shedding its light upon a better and happier generation. The existence of the magic power of good will probably be denied by few. But if the existence of good, or white magic, is admitted, that of evil or black magic is not any more improbable. It is not man who exercises good or evil magic powers, but it is the God in him who works good or evil through the organism of man. God is good or evil, 
according to the conditions under which he acts. For if God did not include evil as well as good, he would not be universal. God performs good or evil deeds according to the mode in which he must act. In the same way as the sun is good in springtime when he melts the snow and assists the grass and flowers to crawl out of the dark earth, and evil, if he parches the skin of the wanderer in tropical Africa and kills persons by sunstroke. God causes the healthy growth of a limb and the unhealthy growth of a cancer by the magic power of his unconscious will, which acts according to the law and not according to whims. Only when divinity in man has awakened to consciousness and knowledge will man be able to control his own magic, spiritual power, and employ it for good or for evil. A person having created or called into consciousness in himself an impersonal power may employ it for good or for evil, but if he employs it for his own personal gain, he loses that power, because in such a case the sense of his personality becomes more permanent and his personal self has no power. Every day we may read of persons who have used high intellectual powers for vile purposes. We see persons making use of the vanity, greediness, selfishness, or ambition of others to render them subservient to their own purpose. We see them commit murder and instigate wars for the benefit of their own purposes or to attain some object for their ambition. But such events belong more or less to the struggle for existence. They do not necessarily belong to the sphere of black magic because they are usually not caused by a love for evil but by a desire of a personal benefit of some kind. The real black magicians are those that are doing evil for the sake of doing evil who injure others without expecting or receiving any benefit for themselves. To that class belong the backbiter and the slanderer, the traducer and seducer, those who create enmity in the bosom of families, who oppose progress and encourage ignorance, and they have been rightly called the powers of darkness. While those who do good for the sole purpose of doing good are the children of light. The struggle between light and darkness is as old as the world. There can be no light become manifest without darkness and no evil without good. Good and evil are the light and shadow of the one eternal principle of life, and each is necessary if the other is to become manifest. Absolute good must exist, but we cannot know it without knowing the presence of evil. Absolute evil cannot exist because it is held together by a spark of good. A soul in which there were no good whatever would rage against itself. The forces constituting such a soul would combat each other and rend it to pieces. Man's Redeemer is his power for good. This power attracts him to that which is good and at the end when the supreme source of all power from which life emanated in the beginning withdraws that activity into itself, the powers of darkness will suffer, but the children of the light will be united with the source of all good. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.